Does anybody remember uh, a TV show? I think they just relaunched it called Kids Say the Darndest Things. Um, what was his name? Uh, the gentleman, um, Art Li- uh, Linkletter. It was back in the day he had that show. And then Bill Cosby did it. And I think uh, Tiffany Haddish, uh, they just relaunched the show. And don't kids just say the darndest things, especially when they're, you know, between that age of maybe two and 20. (laughs) They just say the darndest things. And, you know, you've heard that old saying um, about kids that, you know, out of the mouth of babes, right? And uh, there's certainly some truth that, you know, young people sometimes just reveal some timely truth. Um, out of their mouths. They don't even know what they're saying, but they just speak real truth sometimes in Revelation. And, and I just love it. You know, and some people think it's actually kind of crazy. It's a little foolish, but I don't really think it is. And let me give you a few examples of what I mean today. Here's a few examples of uh, some sayings that I got from some kids as I was surfing the internet. This one kid named Patrick, age 10, said, never trust a dog to watch your food. He's a wise man. (laughs) Michael, age 14, said, when your dad is mad and asks you, do I look stupid? Don't answer him. (laughs) Actually, Michael had another one. He was a very wise young man. He says, never tell your mom that her diet isn't working. (laughs) That wouldn't be good. Randy, age nine, said, stay away from prunes. I'm not really sure how young Randy knows about prunes that way, but okay, he says stay away from prunes. George, age nine, says never hold a dustbuster and a cat at the same time. (laughs) Just a few more. Naomi, age 15, says if you want a kitten, start by asking for a horse. I thought that was pretty wise. I go high, you go low, we meet in the middle. Uh, Lauren, age nine, says, felt markers are not good use as a lipstick. Joel, age 10, says, don't pick on your sister when she's holding a baseball bat. And finally, uh, Elaine, age eight, says, never try to baptize a cat. (laughs) I love these nuggets of truth and wisdom, and although they are funny, these kids, there's a lot of value to what they're saying in their innocent ways. Um, but they teach us so much. If we will only pay attention, uh, these little nuggets of truth and wisdom uh, can teach us so much. So today, we're going to, uh, this is part six of our eight-part series on the book of James. We're going to finish up today chapter three. Now, I know last week we spent, we spent a time, time in verses 1 through 12, and we're going to finish up chapter 3 today. Um, and we're going to find out today what James is trying to tell us on the topic of wisdom. So what is he trying to tell us, and how is he trying to help us through this text live the good life? And that's the title of our sermon today, Living the Good Life. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background today because I think it's going to help 
and how we understand where James is coming from and in James's text what he's really trying to convey to us but we have to have some background first so indulge me for a minute while I give you a little bit of this background and then we'll dive right into the message today James half-brother of Jesus our Lord uh, James was a, a book it was an epistle that was written very early on in church history James is presumed to be the very first epistle that was actually written. So James didn't have the benefit of Paul's writing or John or Peter's writing or any of those great epistles. James was writing from a very pure perspective from Jesus' teaching and the Old Testament, right? James was helping us to understand and see how the Old Testament, the, as the, the, the book teaches us the, the writings of the law and the prophets that that was simply the written prophecy of Jesus and Jesus was actually the revelation of the Old Testament and so as we as we gather this perspective it's important for us to understand that James is really really coming and teaching from an Old Testament perspective and beloved if we don't recognize that as we're examining this text we're gonna grossly misinterpret what James is trying to tell us his words are rooted in the glory and in the amazingness and the beauty and the texture of the Old Testament. So we're going to take some time to understand James's Old Testament foundation of his writing before we dive too far into it. So let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning, Lord, for your amazing word. And God, I ask for your forgiveness. Uh, Father, before anything else, we ask for your forgiveness for our pride and our selfish ambition. God, we seek your wisdom today. We seek to understand your wisdom according not to the words and the wisdom of man, but we seek to understand wisdom according to the revelation of your word. So Lord, will you just saturate us, God, with all of the goodness of Scripture. And God, will you bless us, Lord, with the weight, as Brother Gertie said, with the heaviness and the presence of your Holy Spirit. So we thank you today, God, and the people of God say, Amen. So let me give you, again, I'll probably take just a few minutes, and I'll give you a little bit of background. So what is wisdom? Now, I don't, a lot of people answer wisdom and they'll answer this with this human knowledge and understanding of wisdom, but we have to see things if we're going to live our lives according to scripture, we have to understand these words that we live by based on the text. And so the Hebrew word for wisdom is chokmah. Now, that's kind of an interesting word, and if you examine the Old Testament, if you examine even the books of wisdom, Hebrews, Ecclesiastes, and Job, if you examine the books of wisdom, you will see that this Hebrew word in chokmah is it, it's, it's presented as this invisible force that moves and ebbs and flows and touches every single aspect of our life. And it is a force, scripturally speaking, that we can interact with. 
It is a force, beloved, that moves in every part of our lives. And not only is it a force that we can interact with, but this force is a very attribute of God. If you don't know what I mean, just read in your own time. Read Proverbs chapter 2 and read the entire chapter. Actually, the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, see, we understand Proverbs as these great nuggets, these one-liners and two-liners of this great wisdom on everything from family to life to money to sex to marriage to you name it. But if you read the first nine chapters, it's all about wisdom. And so read chapter 2 of Proverbs and you'll understand what I mean about this invisible force, lady wisdom. And you'll see wisdom is referred to throughout the text as she. I'll give you an example of what I mean here in a moment. So where does wisdom come from? In Job 28 verse 20, Job actually asks this very question. Job says, where does wisdom come from? And if you look a few scriptures later, in uh, Job verse 23, he actually says this. He says, God understands its ways and he knows its place. In other words, Job is saying that this chokmah, that this invisible force of God comes from God alone. It's not anything we create. It's not anything that we ourselves can manifest, that this comes from God alone. Now let's examine this, uh, this invisible force a little bit further. I told you I would just give you a little taste of Proverbs chapter 2, and again, we're going to get to James in a minute, but I think this background is important. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 2. You don't have to turn, I'm going to read it quickly, and I'm going to just read 4, 5, and 6. Verse 4 of Proverbs chapter 2 says, If you seek her, wisdom, lady wisdom, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Verse 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Notice he didn't say, from your mouth. The scripture says, from God's mouth alone comes knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. But there's an interesting statement in this scripture that we see extensively, which is relevant to our discussion on James today, that I am compelled to mention and address with you today. The scripture says, fear of the Lord. Now, you know, early in my faith, I I didn't quite understand that. And I had to wrestle with that because our understanding of the fear of the Lord is very different than this biblical understanding of the fear of the Lord. And so I wrestled with this. And as I examined scripture, this was a reoccurring statement. It was a reoccurring theme. And if you know God well enough, you'll know that if he says something over and over and over again, you should probably pay attention. Amen? Amen. And so I read this text and it says fear of the Lord. So what does it mean? And it's, it's such a crucial part of the entire uh, narrative of the Bible. And I'll give you a few examples of this fear of the Lord and what it means and its significance. There's a scripture, and most of these are in Proverbs, that says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 
Fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. The fear of the Lord is our strong confidence. That fear of the Lord leads us to life that, is, that will have us and leave us to sleep satisfied. And I love the ending of this particular scripture because it says, not only will we sleep satisfied, but we will sleep untouched by evil. Fear of the Lord. So as we, as we kind of uh, um, um, dissect scripture, I'm going to give you the really shortened, condensed version because I'm sure you could do a whole lesson in theology on this fear of the Lord statement, but I'll give it to you succinctly. Fear of the Lord is this fear, this trembling, this reverence for God balanced, right? Being God, being judge, a righteous and holy judge who will one day judge all evil that we fear and we tremble at that very thought. The same way the old saints in the Old Testament, when they were in the presence of God, or when they simply heard his voice, when they were in the presence of God at the, at the foot of the mountain, they feared and trembled. So it is the idea of God as judge balanced with the understanding of God as the Lord and Savior and Redeemer of all of mankind. The balance of those two perspectives gives you a fear of the Lord and it's a healthy and balanced fear because see if you see him only as judge you will totally miss his redemptive work and if you only see him as the prosperity teachers will teach you if you only see him as loving and righteous and all good you will never really revere him as judge and so fear of the Lord is so important and it's key to the good life let me give you another Old Testament example. Again, if James is going to speak to us from Old Testament roots, I want to just make sure we have a good Old Testament foundation. Let's go really quickly. I'm going to take you to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to read the first few verses in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it says this. Again, we're going to zip right through this. It says, now this is the commandment, statutes and the judgments with the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Verse 2 says, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. And verse 3 says, O Israel, you should listen and be careful that you do it, that you may be, it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey, the good life. And so how do we live this good life? Now let's go to James. I just had to give you that background and I think now that you have this understanding and Old Testament background, I pray that you will truly receive this revelation uh, from James chapter 3 in the latter verses. So go there in your text. doesn't matter what version you have. Again, James chapter 3. Let's start today in verse 13. James starts with a question. It's somewhat of a rhetorical question that James is asking, but it is nonetheless an important question. And James says in verse 13, the, uh, 13a, the first half of 13, he says, Who among you is wise... And understanding. 
Beloved, James, okay, we see the text as it's written in our modern Bibles, and we see these breaks in the passage, and we see these chapters, and we see these um, verses. That, listen, this is not how the Bible was originally composed. We later added these things. So James is writing a seamless, continuous thought here. And so what James is doing here in verse 13 is he is connecting you very quickly in this question to what he stated in verse 1. Let's read really quickly in verse 1. It says, let, many, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. He's connecting this message for you to understand not that we can't obtain this uh, as he puts it here, not that we can't obtain this wisdom, not that we can't un, uh, obtain this understanding, but listen, this is serious business, and anything that's God's is nothing to be trifled with. Wisdom is serious business, and I'll help you understand what I mean in a second. And James, what he's doing here is he's connecting us even as far back as Deuteronomy. And that's why I read that scripture for us today, because James is asking a very pointed question, rhetorical, but very pointed question. Who amongst you has wisdom and understanding? But then he goes even further, right? And this is where he's making the connection to Deuteronomy 6 in those first few passages, where basically God says, listen, if you, if you obey my commands, if you do as I have instructed you, if you use my knowledge, my wisdom, and my understanding through the commandments that I have given you, you will live a prosperous life in a land flowing with milk and honey, the good life. And so James says, in the very second part of verse 13, James says, let him, again, after asking this question, he says, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. The gentleness of wisdom. Now, what James is about to do here in this text, he's setting us up. And James is about to give us a really interesting contrast on two types of wisdom. They're in this text, and we'll read it here in a second. We'll read it in kind of a different way. We won't read it succinctly here in an order. But James gives us an interesting contrast about earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Now, sometimes we might confuse the two. Sometimes we may use earthly wisdom in thinking it's heavenly, but James says, I'm going to show you the difference because their origins are very different. See, because an earthly wisdom is rooted in here on earth, and actually he even goes on to say that an earthly wisdom is demonic. But a heavenly wisdom descends from on high. So its origins are from two entirely different places. And James tells us here that, well, actually, I'll give you the, the, or the full earthly wisdom characteristics as well. James in the scripture, and I'll, and I'll just read it for you here. He says that the characteristics of an earthly wisdom, if you read in verse 14, he says that the characteristics of this earthly wisdom is jealousy. It actually says a bitter jealousy, selfish ambition and arrogance. These are the characteristics of earthly wisdom. And what are the results? 
the results of this earthly wisdom are very interesting as well. It says that in verse 16 that the results of these earthly wisdom in that latter part of verse 16 it says is disorder and every evil thing. This is earthly wisdom. And this is the type of wisdom that, especially for many of us early in our walk, we try to understand the holiness, the attributes, the character of God with an earthly wisdom. Now, how can you understand godly things with a demonic perspective? Okay. Now, James is going to give us the contrary. He's going to give us the contrast of this earthly wisdom in the divine wisdom of God, in that chokmah as we talked about. Again, we said that that heavenly wisdom is from where? It's from the heavens. That God's wisdom descends upon us. It does not come out of us, but it descends upon us. And the characteristics, if we read verse 17, the characteristics of this wisdom are drastically different. And in verse 17, he says that this wisdom from above is what? It's pure. There's no contamination in it. It's not defiled in any way. He says that it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's reasonable, it's full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, and without hypocrisy. And what are the results? The results of godly wisdom, as James puts it here, is a harvest of righteousness. Actually, he writes, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James says that with a godly wisdom, you harvest because of the seeds of peace and gentleness and love that you are sowing, you harvest righteousness. Wow, I thought that was powerful. But James says, make your choice. You cannot use and live by earthly wisdom and godly wisdom at the same time. No more than you can have a spring flow sweet and bitter water. Y'all connecting it, right? From last week to this week. James says you have to make a choice, and the choice is yours. There's no compromise. There's no riding the fence here. Make a choice. It is either the earthly demonic wisdom or the wisdom of heaven. But the choice is yours. And wisdom can only be gained, beloved. And I love how God shows us this throughout all of the scripture, that this wisdom can only be obtained, beloved, through what? Through us planting ourselves. He refers to a seed here. It's through us planting ourselves within the community of faith. Specifically for us, within our community of faith. That our community of faith, beloved, here at Emmanuel is more than just Sundays. It's not just an hour and a half or two hours on Sunday. Our community of faith, our family, is bigger than that. It's better than that. And if we're going to reap and develop these seeds of wisdom, we have to plant ourselves into this community of faith. 
to strengthen us, to uplift us, and to encourage us. This is how James helps us to understand the good life. There's a theologian named Kevin Von Hooser, and he made a recent statement not too long ago, and I'm going to quote this theologian, um, and he made an interesting statement about our current age. He said, in this age of irony and cynicism, the market-savvy millennials are not buying they lived happily ever after anymore. They're just not buying it. What's Kevin trying to tell us here? And how do we connect this? You see, it's wisdom that helps us to live out these very characteristics of God that we just read in verse 17. That the young people today, the people who are lost out in the world, they don't want to hear talk anymore. They don't want to hear happily ever after because frankly, life has beaten them up and the world of darkness has shown them nothing but darkness. But these millennials, what they want, these young people and those who are lost, what they want to see is a people who live their lives changed and radically transformed at the cross. Amen. And it is only through wisdom and through the gentleness, you heard it, the, the word gentle and peaceable came up several times in this text. He says that it is this gentleness that a life surrendered at the cross to God's wisdom and not the wisdom of man, it brings us this peace this humility, it brings us this gentleness that when the world says you should probably hate that person, you'll love them. That when the world says you should probably reject them for this reason or that, you receive them. See, this is the type of good life. See, when, y'all said, when I said good life, y'all thought I was meaning some nice cars and a nice house and all that. that. That's not biblical good life. I mean, that's all good too. God, don't speak against that. That's all right. But what God is saying is the good life is a life lived, surrendered to him and in full submission to his glory and his grace and his will, not ours. Why? So that our fruit, so that we can unleash and release his wisdom. And what does the wisdom produce? As the scripture says, this, the, the wisdom produces, again, I'm going to reemphasize this. It, it, it brings peaceable uh, natures, it brings a gentleness and a reasonableness, and it brings us the full mercy of God that when we looked at people and when we talked to people, we, and, and, and even though we have every reason to probably shun them and all of that, we say no because God, I was that person and you loved me and you redeemed me and that's exactly what I'm going to do with them because you gave me your full and unwavering mercy and grace. So thank you, God, for that wisdom to see that you loved me first, and so I'm going to love them. Derek sang a song about that earlier, that we should love them, and it is God's wisdom that helps us to get into that place. It helps us to increase in many aspects of our life. So there's three things that I want to just... wrap up today with. I told you today's message wasn't going to be long, and then I'm going to share a story with you. Um, Wisdom from above does some three very interesting things, and if you want to jot this down, I would encourage you to jot this down. The wisdom from God that James is speaking about with an Old Testament perspective is a wisdom that teaches us to live a life, a good life, that persuades people around us about the goodness and the beauty and the truth of the gospel. 
Some of you won't speak the word of God. You won't evangelize. You won't share the word because you don't think that you know enough scripture because you don't think that I have enough knowledge and I haven't studied enough textbooks and all of that. But your greatest instrument to evangelize is your very lives filled with God's wisdom, his love, and his grace. That's what the wisdom of God does is it is an evangelistic tool. It is an apologetic tool that we can use to show people God's beauty and his grace. Number two, the wisdom of God expands our imagination. And what do I mean by that when I say that it expands our imagination? You see, when we were living selfish lives with earthly wisdom, we thought about what? Number one, you never really thought much about anybody else. It was all about what can I get? How can I benefit? It was all about me. And even your, your kind and, and, and good works had a very selfish motive. Some of y'all don't want to admit that, but, I, I, you know, we, we got to be honest. But what it does is it allows you to imagine more deeply that your tiny piece of the puzzle in your life fits into this grand narrative of God's redemptive story and his plan, that it is no longer about you. You're just a piece in God's puzzle, an important piece nonetheless, because God values every single one of you, but you are a character in God's story in his redemptive plan that he has not yet finished. And so with that perspective, I can imagine more deeply and I can be uh, more creative in how I'm going to love and receive people because God, I'm now not just a character in my own story and in my own universe. No, God, I am a character in your story. And so God, now I'm not living for me. I want you now, God, because of your wisdom, I want you to use me in your story. How can I be used? Number three, I said three, number three. (laughs) The wisdom of God will expand us in our understanding of how to live out the truth of the gospel in ways that we never thought possible. And we live out this truth, this truth that we defend every day. And don't we defend it? Don't we defend this gospel every day in our minds when we hear one opinion or we hear this thought or we hear these people speaking? We're defending the gospel in our own mind. But what the wisdom of God allows us to do is not just defend it in our own mind, but the wisdom of God helps us to live it out, not just live it in. And so we see now the truth of God and we say, God, you love thee enough to die for me and to share all of your goodness and glory and wisdom with me and to rise me from the dead. And so now I'm going to live this out so that even if it's just one in my entire lifetime, even if it's just one soul, that you can use me to save that one soul. And you can, I can live out the truth of your gospel, completely surrendered, completely given myself to you. All right. I want us to close this message today with, I think, a, a really interesting story. Because th- there are a lot of norms in this world. There, there are a lot of standards in this world. Um, and sometimes we have a hard time. Sometimes it's easier said than done right? 
to live out God's wisdom. It's easier said than done to walk this life, to live this biblical good life that the scripture's trying to tell us. But I got to ask you, will you today, if you've already done it, will you do it more deeply? If you've never done it, will you do it for the first time? Will you today live your life not according to the norms and the standards of the world, but will you live a life reflected and transformed at the cross? Will you exemplify the wisdom that he's speaking about in this text? See, because there is no riding the fence, guys. There is no hypocrisy allowed in this wisdom. It is either the demonic wisdom of man or the heavenly wisdom of God. You choose. But the mercy of the gospel that has been shared with you should encourage you to live out God's heavenly wisdom. But you choose. You choose. There was a story, um, one that I'm rather fond of. Um, It was a story, and some of you may know it, some of you may have read it. Um, It was a story written back in 1906. It is now, today, an American classic. Uh, London, uh, Jack London, in 1906, wrote White Fang. And White Fang is a really good book, and it's basically, if you've never read White Fang, anybody here read it? Cover to cover? It's a great book. Amen. Okay, a handful of you have. Okay, it's a great book. They actually made a movie about it, I don't know, 10 or years or so ago. Um, thought the book was better. But in this story, it is basically about an animal, half domestic dog, half wolf. And it's all about his life and his survival in wilderness and how this animal basically comes to befriend and live amongst humans. There's actually a really interesting story or part of this story that kind of resonated with me that I want to share with you about White Fang. So in this story, um, there, was a, there was a part of this where White Fang was with his master, with, was with his owner. And White Fang, like most dogs, especially wild dogs, um, he really liked chickens. Now, obviously, I can identify with this story, Okay. <laughs> Okay, so White Fang, had, his master had a bunch of chickens, and they were in their chicken pen. And um, White Fang got into the pen, and he killed 50 of his master's chickens. Okay? And so his master was really upset with him. And so his master scolded White Fang, and he disciplined him strongly. But it wasn't, that wasn't it. See, because his master came in... And he took White Fang and he sat with him in the chicken area in their run. And of course, naturally, every time a chicken walked by, what would White Fang do? He'd try to grab him. And every time he would hear the voice of his master. But that was his nature, right? It was his nature to, to, to go after those chickens. That was his natural instinct, But see, his master, every time he did it, his master would check him. He would hear the voice of his master telling him to stop. And towards the end of the day, he just sat there because he got it. He realized that his master wanted him not to serve his natural inclination, but his master wanted him to obey his will. And he got it. So the master in this story, a young boy, 
His father comes and he says, you can't take the wolf out of that dog. You just can't. You cannot change his natural instinct. He's a killer. If you leave him in there by himself, he's going to kill some more chickens. And so there was a challenge. And so the young boy said, okay, I'll take you up on that challenge. And I'm going to leave White Fang here. And we're going to leave. And so he leaves him there. White Fang watches his masters go. And he just sat there. He laid down, actually. The chickens walked back and forth and he paid them no mind as if they didn't even exist. They weren't even there. And at the end of the day, about four o'clock, White Fang got bored. And so he jumped on top of the coop and leaped over the fence and got out of the chicken coop. What's the point of that story? You see, White Fang's natural inclination was to do what he wanted to do. See, his natural inclination was to destroy. His natural inclination was to do his own will and to attack and kill those chickens. Isn't that like our own will, our natural inclination? Isn't our natural inclination to sin and to destroy? Isn't that what sin has done to us, every single one of us, without exception? But what happened is, and like us, White Fang heard the voice of his master. As we too, beloved, must hear the voice of our master. And see, if we're going to live out and and execute this divine wisdom, we must listen out and receive the voice of our master. See, because White Fang, he, he surrendered his will. He surrendered his natural inclinations and desires. And although White Fang did not understand why, just like you don't really understand why you should or need to or must surrender and submit all of your sinful inclinations, he said, I will surrender it and submit to the will of my master. And isn't that too what we should do? Shouldn't we too, if we're trying to live the good life, if we're trying to receive the wisdom of God and live the good life, should we too not, just like White Fang, should we too not surrender our own will and our own desire, our own appetites to the will of our Master and our Lord Jesus Christ? But the enemy will challenge you. And just when you think you got it, just when you think, you know what, Lord, I've done it. I'm doing everything you ask me. Then comes the challenge. And the devil will challenge you. Anybody been through some challenges lately? Oh, amen. Praise God. The devil will challenge you. The devil will say, I'm going to leave you in the midst of all of those chickens. Or let me replace it. The devil says, I'm going to leave you in the midst of all of your old sins. I'm going to expose you to some stuff that used to make you fall. Let's see if you have tamed the wildness inside of you. Let's see what voice you are listening to. Let's see if you're willing to receive the wisdom of God or if it is the earthly wisdom that is going to drive you towards your sin. The choice is yours. Sin's always going to be there, guys. Temptation will always be there. But the choice is yours. And everything we read, as I close today, everything we read in this text, in this amazing book of life, leads us to one place. 
to the cross. Where we will surrender our lives, where we will surrender our will, where we will surrender all that we are. And we will consider, as Paul said, we will consider all of it rubbish to receive the glory of what was given to us on the cross. Will you live a life surrendered? Will you surrender your will for his? Will you surrender your wisdom for his today? And will you show your friends, your family, will you show our community that you're living a life surrendered at the cross? I'm going to leave you with that today. That's going to be your homework for next week. (laughs) Next week, we're going to cover chapter four. So read up. Read through the book of James again. This week, I encourage you to dissect and and just digest chapter 4 and come ready to receive a word that God's going to share about chapter 4. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be amazing.